Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right. Hey, uh, before I jump in, I want to make a brief announcement, uh, and then uh, we'll get into the Word. Uh, I want to invite all of you to come back to church next weekend, which I'm sure you knew you could come uh, because that's what I do every week, invite you to come to church. But uh, something very special is happening next weekend. Uh, We have the opportunity to hear from one of the ministry partners that we support every single month. In fact, it is the first uh, ministry that we give to uh, at the beginning of every month because uh, we believe so passionately that the gospel needs to be preached to the Jewish people. Uh, You'll hear a little bit more about that next week, but uh, we are going to have an opportunity to host and hear from Moran and Melissa. They run Hope for Israel, and uh, it is a ministry that is bringing the gospel to Jewish people in Tel Aviv, and uh, this this guy is incredible. My my wife and I had an opportunity to uh, meet with him and and, and sit down and have a lunch together and hear about all that they're doing, and as soon as we heard about their ministry, we're like, we have got to support this as a church, Uh, and so I'm excited just because you get to hear from one of the partners that we minister, ministry partners that we invest in every single month, uh, but also just to hear about the Jewish roots of our faith and uh, our heart behind seeing all the Jewish people come to know their Messiah, that the veil would be lifted, as it says in Scripture, and that they would see Jesus for who he truly is. So uh, please come back next weekend, and uh, feel free to invite some friends with you. I think it's going to be a powerful time. Sound good? Okay. I love that you could kind of hear who the Pentecostals were, by the way, as those videos were going, like, I spoke in tongues, and like 10 people like, woo! Don't think I don't hear you. It's awesome. So you better bring that same energy during the word. Are you ready to preach with me today? Someone say yes. All right. So we are in week five of a series that uh, we've been uh, studying this whole summer called Wise Up. And I guess I'm going to make you do it again. Come on, turn to somebody next to you with a little bit of attitude and tell them, you better wise up, son. You better wise up, girl. Channel your inner gangster. Come on, get that, get that vernacular right. Uh, And during this series, we are studying through the book of Proverbs and learning how to apply some of its ancient wisdom to our modern day lives. Uh, I've met a number of new people here, so I'll I'll briefly catch you up to speed in this second service. Uh, We have uh, learned that this, the author of this book, the predominant author of this book is a guy by the name of King Solomon, and he was uh, named the wisest man to ever live in scripture. And as we've reminded ourselves of each week, that was not because he had some elite education or a whole lot of life experience. Uh, His wisdom was divinely inspired. It was given to him by God. So when we listen and hear from these scriptures, we're not hearing somebody's opinion or the latest guru. We're hearing from heaven what God would say we could apply to our daily lives and begin to live out. In fact, that is the purpose of this book. It was preserved in scripture to teach us how to live godly lives. Uh, And that thought is supported in the opening verses where Solomon writes in our key text, Proverbs one. Uh, These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise, to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. And I love that he delineates there in the, the last sentence of those scriptures that Wisdom is not simply knowledge alone, it is applied knowledge. It's the ability to do something with what you know. As James says, we don't wanna simply be hearers of the word, we want to be doers of the word. And the goal in this series is not to to tickle your intellect and get you to learn a little bit more about the Bible, it's to inspire us to begin to put these biblical principles into practice in our lives so that we can see the fruit of what it looks like to live 
with wisdom. Uh, There was a gal who was baptized this morning and uh, I asked for permission to share a few sentences from her testimony because I think it supports the whole heart of this series so well, even though it wasn't a public baptism. But she, she wrote this in her testimony. She said, I've grown up in the Christian faith and have always known about God. The difference now is how I apply my knowledge of scripture to my daily life. Instead of just knowing about God, I get to live out what the Bible teaches me on a day-to-day basis. Come on, that's good right there. That is wisdom. It is applied knowledge. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I would normally recap the previous weeks. I do not have time for that today. Uh, So if you have missed any of this series, I want to encourage you to go back and check it out on the YouTube or the podcast. But the reason I I don't have time today is because I have a lot of content we need to churn through here in just a few moments. Because the subject matter I want to tackle is a very massive subject in Scripture. Um, It's a phrase that You've probably read before, if you've ever read through the Bible, or even if you're just joining us in our daily reading of Proverbs, a proverb a day keeps the stupid away. And uh, if you're joining us in that read campaign during this series, you've probably stumbled upon this phrase a number of times, but most Christians have a difficult time articulating what this concept means. And I'd like to do my best to to, to resolve that today if we could. And and here's the phrase. Today we're gonna talk about the fear of God. The fear of God. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Yeah, and I don't mean you saw it on the side of a $600 tennis shoe or you, know, you saw it on a sweatshirt out in the lobby that said essentials on the front. I mean, you've actually read it in the Bible, yeah. The fear of God. It is a massive concept in scripture. In fact, it's mentioned some 490 times in the Bible, but I actually believe it is one of the most misunderstood and probably misapplied concepts in scripture as a result of that misunderstanding. Yet, since the Bible speaks about it so prominently, we need to understand what this phrase means and what effect it's supposed to have on our lives. So we're going to look at a single scripture from the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And uh, as we go to that, if you've got a Bible, you can open up. uh, Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. In fact, let's read it together since it's so short. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. It is what everything else is built upon. Now, now based on that scripture, uh, it might be assumed that I did a very poor job in planning out this series because we are four weeks in and I have not talked about the foundation yet. So everything else we've been talking about is crumbling before our very eyes as a result of a poor foundation. That's my bad. I'm gonna go ahead and fix that today, okay? I'm gonna take that one. Uh, but better late than never, all right? So, so I think everything we've learned up until now, we can place on the foundation that we're going to learn of today. So let, let's pray as we get into the scriptures and uh, let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, shall we? Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for your presence here and I thank you for what you did in worship just a few moments ago. Jesus, as we sang your name, it is undeniable that you came into this space to meet with us. You said that if the Son of Man would be lifted up, that you would draw all men unto yourself, that where you are worshiped with two or three, you will be there in our presence. And so we thank you that you are here right now. And as we've prayed every single week, according to the first chapter of the book of James, we ask for wisdom. You said if anyone lacks it, we can ask you for it, and you will not deny us for asking. So in this area, with this concept that so so crucial, so foundational, and yet so misunderstood, pray that you'd speak to us over these few moments and we'd leave not just with fresh understanding, but fresh application of this concept in our lives. We love you. Thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And la casa de Padre diga, amen. Amen. 
I'm brushing up on my Spanish, people. Duolingo. Hey, okay. So it is, it is probably not surprising that this concept of fearing God is so misunderstood, especially when you consider its phrasing, just the wording of it, in the context of Scripture's narrative. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Generally, when we are afraid of something, we run from it. Fear is, is generally an, an opportunity, an excuse to flee. Most normal people don't embrace or run to their fears. There are, of course, some people, and if this is you, I'm going to rebuke you right now, uh, who spend a whole lot of money sitting in theaters, entertaining the demonic realm, and loving the feeling of fear that comes as they open up their heart to receive from demon after demon after demon after demon. I would not recommend that. That's probably not the best way to spend the time. As Jazzy taught us a few weeks ago, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And if you're watching movies about hell, it's probably not the best thing to be doing. Just this little tip from Uncle Tim here this morning. But I'm not that guy. I do not like scary. Anyone just hates scary movies? You're like, okay, thank you. Yeah. I, Literally, the last scary movie I watched was The Ring, and I was 19 years old. And as a 19-year-old man, I don't know if you can call a 19-year-old a man, but I slept on my parents' floor for a solid week after watching that movie because I was terrified. I'm like, she's in my room right now. I do not like being scared. So, but this, this idea of being afraid of God, it, it, it becomes a bit of a problem if the fear of the Lord means to be afraid of him because that would contradict a fair bit of scripture, wouldn't it? Most of the Bible speaks about the nearness of God, coming close to him, not running away from him. Romans chapter two says that it is his loving kindness that draws us unto him. Romans chapter eight says that we have been adopted into the family of God and our spirit calls out to him, Abba, Father. Father wants to be close to his children. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So if God wanted us to come near to him, to be close, he wouldn't command us to be terrified of him because nobody runs to something that they are terrified of. And no, nobody tries to pursue that thing. And so th there, there must be a different definition for the fear of the Lord. It must not mean to be afraid of God. And we would be wise to to, to, to do the difficult research and determine what that truly means because this book is littered with promises to those who fear God. The, the Proverbs alone speak about him being a friend to those who, who, who fear him. To, they live in the protection of God and the blessing of God when they fear him. That there'll be long life and provision for those who embrace the fear of the Lord. All of those promises are forfeited if we don't understand and truly embrace this concept of what it means to fear God. So, so before we can discover how to apply this in our lives or embrace the concept, we really need to know what it is. We need a solid definition. So for the note takers, uh, this word fear in, in Hebrew, it is the word yira, yira. And it means respect, reverence, or awe. Notice how in that definition, our traditional understanding of fear does not exist. Nowhere in that definition does it suggest that we should be running away or terrified of God. It means respect, reverence, and awe. In the Hebrew, to fear God means to venerate him. It is this idea of being captivated with his beauty and his majesty, awestruck at his presence and his goodness. 
And that awe, it doesn't act as a repellent. It's an attractant. It's a magnet. It beckons us to come close and, and be near to him. However, though we are requested to, to make an appearance in his presence, it does not allow us to come flippantly or casually into it. There is still a deep honor and respect and reverence for the fact that he is God. Uh, unlike the t-shirt of the 90s, God is not your homeboy. He is almighty. He's a king. He's a Lord. He is the, the, the one who stands and demands that every knee bow and tongue confess. He is God. So yes, I marvel and I stand in awe at his goodness, but I am aware of his justice and I'm aware of his power and it stirs a sense of reverence in me. And, and that awareness, it acts like a, like a warning siren every time I am tempted to sin or turn my back on God. For I know what it means to live in the shadow of the Almighty. I know what it means to exist in his covering, to experience his provision and his blessing and his protection. And I would be terrified to willfully step out from underneath that covering. I don't want to go back to where I came from. I don't want to go back to the property of the enemy. And that terror of being away from God's presence drives me back to him. It is magnetic in nature. That's why it says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It is such a repellent, not because, oh, it's sin and it's deep and it's dark. It's because I know what it's like to be close to God and I don't want to miss out on what's available in his presence. I, I love the way that author John Bevere says it. He says, the fear of the Lord is to be terrified of being away from him. <laughs> it's not to be terrified of him. It's to be terrified of being away from God. That, that is the best way that I can attempt with human words to articulate such a massive concept in Scripture. It, it is this beautiful tension between awe and reverence. He's good, but man, he's also holy. But, but, but even that kind of falls flat, if I'm being honest. I don't know that it's a, it's a definition that words alone can bring clarity to. And that frustrated me this week. I, I generally, as you know, try to find ways to, to bring clarity to confusing concepts by using objects or analogies or cow tongues or whatever is necessary. <laughs> Shout out to the people who ate it last week in the second row. There you go. Lengua. Te gusta la lengua de tacos. Okay. Yes. And man, all week long, I'm thinking about this phrase and the fear of God and what it means. And I'm like, I'm all out of tongues. Like, I got to find something to, 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 to demonstrate what this means. And nothing truly captured the essence of what it truly meant to fear God. And so as I'm praying this week and asking the Holy Spirit, I'm like, God, these are your people. They, they need a message. I'm just the donkey delivering it. Come on, give me something here for the church. And in one moment, as I was praying, the Holy Spirit dropped a, a simple scripture in my heart. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, that is exactly what it means to fear God. And so I, I want us to hear this today and, and embrace it. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. I think this captures the essence of the fear of God. It says this, our God is a consuming fire. Everybody say fire. fire. Come on, if you're Spanish, say fuego. fuego. If you are Filipino, say apoy. If you're Cantonese, say four. Yeah, yeah, got it. 
I'm fooling everybody up here. All right. Our God is a consuming fire. I do not know that there is an element that more, more accurately captures the essence of the fear of the Lord than fire. Let me explain what I mean by that. Fire draws you in, doesn't it? It's like hypnotic in nature. You can stare at the flames of a fire for hours. They just dance and change colors and you're captivated by its beauty. But it draws you because of its goodness. A fire can bring warmth in the cold. It can bring clarity in the midst of darkness. A fire can purify something that's impure. It can separate the dross from precious metals. It can cauterize a wound. It could be said that without fire, we would not be able to survive. Fire can do a lot of good. But fire is also something to be respected. It demands reverence as well. Yes, the same fire that can do good can also destroy. It can decimate a city. It can displace a community. It can take somebody's life if handled inappropriately. Fire is good, but it can also burn you. And I will never forget learning that lesson the hard way when I was a five-year-old little kid. I don't remember much about my childhood. I don't know what that says about me. My counselor will probably sort that one out with me. But I do remember this. It's like singed in my memory, pun intended. It was uh, the 4th of July, and I lived in Sacramento at the time with my family uh, where fireworks are legal. I just need to add that disclaimer into this story. And uh, I was begging my father as a five-year-old kid to let me set off a firework for the first time. And uh, we had these, uh, I think they were called spinners. You know, the spinners that shoot the, 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 the things everywhere? Yeah, so I was like, Dad, just come on. Let me, let me set off a firework. Let me set off. And I'm begging him all day long. But being the man of wisdom that he was, he continued to tell me no time and time and time again. However, my persuasion skills were strong, even as a five-year-old kid. And eventually, my begging wore him down. Same way it wore my wife down when I kept asking her to marry me. Eventually, if you just keep asking, come on, where's my single people at? If you just keep asking... They're going to run out of options and they're going to go, fine, I'll settle for you. That's how it worked for me. Okay. So finally, after begging my dad all day long, he, he, he said, okay, I'll, I'll let you set off the firework, but we're going to practice first to make sure you know what you're doing. I said, okay. So he puts an unlit spinner in my hand and he's like, okay, Timmy, throw the firework. So I throw the firework and okay, let's do it again. He pretends to light it and okay, throw the firework and throw the firework. We do this like 20 or 30 times. Finally, once I had convinced him that, that I was capable of following directions, he's like, okay, are you ready? And I'm like, that's <laughs> Yes, I'm ready. Let's go. It's like, okay. So he puts a spinner in my hand and he lights the fuse. And then he, he says what he had said 30 times prior. All right, Timmy, throw the firework. Timmy, throw, throw, throw the firework. T Tim, Tim, Timothy, Timothy Irving Biddle, throw the firework. I just stared at this glowing object in my hand. It was like everything else in the world stood still. Nothing else mattered beyond this beautiful flaming thing in my hand. And eventually the fuse hit the bottom of the firework and the thing went off in my hand and it just starts spinning and spinning and spinning. But for a split second, I didn't feel any pain. I was just captivated with the beauty of this flaming object in my hand. But as any good father would, he came over and he grabbed my wrist and he threw the firework. And at that moment, I had a revelation. Fireworks and fire are, yes, they're beautiful and they're good. 
but they also demand a little bit of respect and reverence as this thing burned a hole, a cavern inside my hand. My mom showed me pictures of it. Like, I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, you were horrible parents. Why would you let me set off a firework? <laughs> yeah, fire, fire's good, but man, if you don't handle it correctly, it can mess you up. It's good, but it demands our reverence. And so does your God. He is good. Come on, can anybody testify today? He is good. He'll bring warmth in the cold. He'll bring clarity in dark seasons. He forgives sin and removes guilt and shame. And he will cause the gifts of your life to sift up through the service as, service as he gets rid of the dross through the flames of his goodness. And he can heal wounds and bind up the brokenhearted. He is good. But do not forget that he is also God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the captain of the Lord's armies. He is the Lord strong in battle. He's the one whose voice can split the cedars and twist the mighty oaks. And he is perfect justice for the oppressed and those who have exalted themselves against the weak. He will fight on their behalf. He is good, but he is also all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient. He's still God. And to fear him is to understand that tension. It's to, to live with the awareness of, yes, you are so good, and I desire to be around you, but you are holy, and you are God. And to reverence his presence. That's what it means. He's an all-consuming fire. Now, that answers the, the question of, of, of what but it does not answer perhaps the most important question. As we've said throughout the course of this series, wisdom is not knowledge alone. So a definition doesn't do the job this morning. It's not simply enough to understand what the fear of the Lord is. We must also ask ourselves whether or not we have it. And so I pose the personal question to every person sitting in the room today, do you fear God? Do you live in that tension of awe and reverence? Are you terrified of being away from his presence? Is there is something in you that just longs to be close to him and it repels you from sin? Or have you found yourself in a season perhaps where you've grown comfortable distant from God, where you're away from him? Or, or, or maybe even worse, you've bought into a false definition of fear that serves as a repellent where you run from God instead of running to him. And if so, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time together answering this question, how do I get the fear back? How do I invite this awe and reverence back into my life? And for that, we're going to look at yet another man who was captivated by a burning object one day and he couldn't look away. Uh, back, not in the book of Proverbs, but in the book of Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at a day in the life of Moses. And uh, a little bit of context before we go to our text. At this point in his journey, Moses is not the man of God who is the deliverer of Israel. He's not standing before Pharaoh saying, let God's people go. At this point, he's in a much different state. He's an escaped criminal. 
He had murdered uh, an Egyptian slave driver upon witnessing this slave driver beating a fellow Israelite. And as a result of his murder, he fled Egypt and finds himself now on the backside of the wilderness, tending to the the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. But in this space of obscurity, God begins to reveal himself to Moses and invite him into what he's calling him to do. Uh, The the scriptures uh, say it like this in Exodus chapter 3. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side uh, of the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain. I always knew God was up on the west side, all right? God's a gangster like that. Okay. Oh, my God. (laughs) Stop it, Tim. You're wearing linen. You're not a gangster. Okay. (laughs) There the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Come on, be serious, people, for the love of God. Okay. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then God said, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Using this familiar text for many, I want to give us two simple thoughts about how we invite the fear of God, maybe for the first time or back into our lives. Uh, Number one is this. If we're going to get the fear back, we need to run to the fire. Run to the fire. Emphasis on to. Notice when Moses witnesses this burning bush, when he sees the fire, he doesn't flee in fear. He doesn't turn tail and run the other direction like what is happening. No, in that moment, he approaches the fire. What did it say in verse four? It says that he came to take a closer look. He allowed the fire to be an invitation to come close. Now, this may not seem super significant, but let me tell you why this is a big deal. Remember again, at this point, Moses is not the chosen man of God to deliver the Israelite people. He's a criminal. He's got blood on his hands. He has murdered somebody. And he is now being invited as a murderer, as a sinner, to enter into the presence of a holy God, this holy ground. And and Moses may not know much, but he knows that God is not a big fan of sin. And yet, when he's invited to step into this holy place, he doesn't allow his sin to disqualify him. He doesn't say, I don't belong here and run the other direction. He actually runs to the fire. Let me tell you why I think a lot of believers don't have the fear of God. Because they are running from God when they should be running to God. They have allowed their sin and their failure that their past or the events of last night to serve as a disqualifier. And they think that their failure and their sin is an excuse, an off-ramp to make sure that they get away from God's presence for fear of judgment or fear of punishment. They don't understand that in his presence is actually what they need. And because of fear, they flee the other direction. It's literally the oldest trick in the book. Go back to the beginning of time. What happened? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They blow it. What do they do? They hide. They're running from God. But what does God do? He comes into the garden in the midst of where they're at and he pursues those who have failed. 
He is a pursuer of the sinner. And what Moses is showing us here by this act of approaching fire is that sin is not an opportunity for us to run away from God. It is the very invitation to come closer to him because in his presence is what I truly need. Man, I wish I had more time to unpack this because this is a big deal. This is the difference between you making it as a Christian or falling apart, falling off the wagon. Your understanding of how to respond to seasons of failure, when you blow it, when you did that thing you said you thought you would never do again or you promised God you'd never, the way you respond to that is a make or break for your relationship with him. I'm gonna break a cardinal rule of preaching and I'm gonna just drop a little thought here hoping that some people go home and do the homework afterwards and research what I'm about to say. But go back to Exodus chapter 20. Take a look at how the Israelites respond to the presence of God and how Moses responded to the presence of God. Here's what you'll notice. Most of the time, we as believers respond like Israel and not like Moses. At the top of the very same mountain where God met Moses on Mount Sinai, he appears to the Israelites in a cloud of fire and he begins to speak to them the Ten Commandments that we all know well. And in that moment, they are so terrified, they are so afraid of God that they say to Moses, you go up the mountain and you talk to God because if we talk to him, he's gonna kill us. So you just come back and tell us what he said. And Moses says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. He says, don't be afraid. God has revealed himself through the fire so that you might have the fear of the Lord that would cause you to turn from evil and turn to God. Notice the language again. Do not be afraid, instead fear God. The fear of the Lord does not cause us to run away from him in seasons of sin, but like Moses and hopefully the people of Israel, he's saying my fear is to draw you to me so that you understand everything that you need is right here. That is the appropriate application of fear. That one's free, okay? You can study that one out later on when you get home. If we're gonna get the fear back, we need to learn to run to the fire, not away from it. Number two, last thought. If we're going to get the fear back, we need to take off our shoes. Take off our shoes. Last scripture, Exodus chapter three. I invite the worship team to come uh, as we prepare to close. It says this once again. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And then God said, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals, take off your shoes. To truly embrace the implication and the application of this act of removing shoes, we need to understand the cultural significance of this moment. We need an understanding of what this might have meant in Moses' context. Because this simple phrase is loaded with cultural significance. P perhaps the most obvious significance is the one clearly stated in the scripture. God says, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. Not that the dirt itself was anything special, but God's presence was there. And since God's presence was there, it made that place holy. I said this first service, I'll say it again. Never underestimate your ability to take common places and make them holy by inviting the presence of God in. Your car, your workplace, your house, it can be holy ground because you're a carrier of the presence of Jesus and you can invite him into that space. You know, if you were to walk into a holy site, 
even in most Eastern cultures today, a temple or a space that a prophet or somebody had walked on, it would not be uncommon for you to be asked to remove your shoes. And the reason for that is because it's a sign of respect and honor and reverence for the place you're walking into. You say, okay, I understand what happened here. So I'm showing my honor and my respect by removing my shoes. So that's obvious. That's what God is asking Moses to do. But the other applications are not as easily mined unless we dig a little bit deeper into the culture. For example, most theologians or Jewish rabbis would agree that this act of asking Moses to remove his shoes was also an invitation into oneness or unity and intimacy with God that had not been experienced since Adam and Eve in the garden. By asking Moses to remove his shoes, God was saying, I'm ready to become one with you. The skin of man touching the holiness of God. Not even the the leather of a sandal separating the two of them. It, It would be the spiritual equivalent of grounding or earthing, as some have called it. The practice of standing barefoot and collecting the energy from the earth. If you do that, you know who you are. If you don't, God bless you. But it's this idea that God's here and I want to be as close to him as I possibly can. But, but what I would consider to be the, the most significant application and implication of this act is the one I want to land on today in the last few moments. And it's this. In removing one's shoes, what Moses was saying is, I'm going to linger here for a while. It's this idea of lingering, of staying, of setting aside some time and saying, I don't plan to go anywhere. This is where I want to be. If you were to come to my house today after church, you'd notice on my front door, there is a sign that says, please remove your shoes upon entering. And that's because I don't know where you people are walking. I don't know what's on the bottom of your shoes. There's COVID out there and monkeypox and all kinds of crazy stuff. And you know, my house is holy ground. So I need you to remove your shoes as you walk in. I'm just kidding. But if you were to show up to my house and you were just gonna be dropping something off, this happens often, someone stops by to drop something off or just to pick something up from us. We don't demand that people remove their shoes when they come into the house. It would be too lengthy a process to untie the shoes and put them back on to simply grab a piece of paper or to drop something off, a pie maybe, who knows? Just a suggestion. But by nature of the brevity of your stay, you would be allowed to keep your shoes on. However, If I invited you over for dinner, if you were just coming over to hang out for a little while, just to be, then you'd remove your shoes because the length of your stay would demand it. I wonder how many Christians are trying to serve God with their shoes on. Where the extent of their relationship with Jesus is marked by drop-ins to his presence where we come to get what we needed, drop off our problems, and then just jump right out the door because the demands of life are beckoning. Where when we come into his home, his house, the church, we get antsy if things start to run a little bit long or one of the band members decides they wanna exhort a little bit longer and we start looking at the watch and we think, oh, Stern Grove's across the street and the parking lot's gonna be chaos, so I'm gonna run out the door while the pastor's praying, even though that at that moment, it's the most significant thing that's happening in any given service. People are coming from death to life. 
just get antsy trying to serve God with our shoes on. But there's never a moment where we just take off our shoes. Don't judge my socks. And we just say, I got nowhere else to be but here. This is, this is where I want to be. I want to be in your presence and I'm going to linger here. Listen, the fear of God is no fleeting matter. It is forged in the fires of intimacy. And you know how to spell intimacy, right? T-I-M-E. Time. You can't buy intimacy. You don't encounter intimacy. Encountered intimacy is nothing more than a one-night stand. And God is not interested in cheap transactional relationships with people. No, he longs for the slow burn of intimacy that is forged in the embers of lingering in his presence. Are you a lingerer? Is there something in you that says, I woke up early because I just want to be with God. I stayed up late because I just want to be in your presence. I'm not going to let the notifications on my phone or the distractions of my day or the demands of my life rob me of this moment because this is what I need most. I need to be in your presence. So I will linger in worship and I will linger in your word and I will linger in prayer. And I will stay here because everything that I need is found in your presence. So I'm taking off my shoes because I intend to stay a while. Do, do you have this practice in your life? Or is Christianity nothing more than a box that you check and then go about the more important things of your existence? Everything you need is here. This is what it means to fear the Lord, is to take off our shoes and to linger in his presence. Moses was a lingerer. He raised up a lingerer. Joshua was said to stick around in the temple after everybody else left, just hang out in the presence of God. David, he lingered in the presence. Out in the wilderness, just hung out with, with God. The apostles, the disciples, 120 of them on the day of Pentecost were just lingering in prayer. And God said, there is an environment where I can pour out my spirit and change the entire climate of what it means to be a follower. Never underestimate what God will do if you just set aside some time to linger in his presence. Man, I'm grateful that we have people in this community that just know what it is to linger. I was telling Galerme last service, I said, thanks for being a lingerer and for leading our community into times where we just hang out in the presence of God. We need that. Tim, you're a lingerer. I can tell when I talk to you and when you talk about Jesus, you know what it's like to hang out in his presence. Ashley, you're a lingerer. Yeah, yeah you are. You're proud of it. I like it. <laughs> Come on, let's, let's not be in a hurry. I love that phrase from Will Reagan in United Pursuit song. It says, I'm not in a hurry when it comes to your spirit, when it comes to your presence, when it comes to your voice. I'm learning to listen and rest in your nearness. Come on, that's the kind of people I wanna be. I wanna be a people that knows what it means to rest in the nearness of God. I conclude with this scripture. It's my wife's life verse. It is literally burnt into the leather of her Bible. Uh, it is 
written by the psalmist David. I imagine if Moses was given the opportunity to choose a life verse, this one might be a contender because it speaks so clearly to the day he heard God's voice from a bush. And I pray that today this simple invitation would be like the burning bush calling all of us. Psalm 27 verse eight. It says, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. Lord, I'm, I'm ready to just hang out with you. That is the invitation of the Lord today. Come, talk to him and watch how he develops in you what it means to fear him and produces the fruit of godly fear in your life. Let, let, me, let me pray this over us as we conclude. Teach us today, Jesus. Teach us what it means to just rest in you, to not be in a hurry. I pray over a group of people who is immersed in a culture that is rush, rush, hurry, hurry, so much happening at one time, where when we wake up in the morning, there's the Slack notifications and the text messages and the emails, and there's a demand on our attention at any given moment, a generation of even young people that don't know how to not look at something for more than five or 10 seconds at a time. Would, would you right now show us what it means to linger in your presence? Help us to be those people that long to just be, to take off our shoes and to be with you. And even as I'm praying this, maybe you're here this morning and say, hey, Tim, um, you talked about people who were terrified of being out from underneath the covering, away from God. I feel like that's where I'm at right now. I feel like I've been at a distance from God. I don't know that I'm under his protection or that I'm under the, the shadow of his wings. Maybe you served him years ago and you've been at a distance or maybe it's your first time ever hearing that there is a God that loves you. There's a God that gave his life for you. Today, I wanna invite you, if that's you, to, to step in, to say yes to Jesus, to make a decision to follow him with your whole life. And uh, that's what this is all for at the end of the day. If that's you this morning, you say, Tim, I need to get things right with God before I leave this place. I wanna pray a prayer of commitment with you. We're gonna all pray it together in just a moment. But before I do, would you quickly slip up your hand and look at me so I know who I'm praying with today? Hey, right on, just, yeah. Yeah, I got you, awesome. Yeah, oh, a couple of you guys over here, awesome. Yes, yes, yeah, right over there in the back. Thank you, Jesus. All right, we're gonna pray this together as a family like we started doing last weekend. And you can just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I believe you are the one who gave his life for my sins. And today I receive the life available through your resurrection. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name. And the Father's house said, Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.